I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I wanted to start by asking something very general about the, this word destruction um, and I wonder if you could each say something about whether it's a sabotage of attention or merely attention displaced or refocused. Um, so we're thinking about how we're using that word here this evening and maybe we could start with Adam. Well, the obvious answer to this is it's both. Uh, it would seem to me that distraction has, the idea of distraction has in it a kind of essentialism, as in it implies there is something that we should be concentrating on. And so, in a way, it's a very interesting term because it locates, I think, questions of concentration and attention. So you could imagine, say, here, um, on the one hand you could think um, this will be a good event if it holds everybody's attention. But from another point of view, you could think it would be a good event if it frees you all to just have your own thoughts and be distracted. So I, I could imagine, I mean, obviously I've been thinking about this before the event, but I could imagine a situation in which, for example, one might value artifacts or people for the distractions that they lead to rather than the subjects that they focus. In other words, it seems to me it's very much about, it's something to do with um, the freedom to have the complexity of one's own mind and the freedom to relinquish whatever it is that narrows one's mind into attention. And of course in, in psychoanalysis, um, free-floating attention really is based on the idea that in a way concentrating and attending narrows the mind. Yeah, I suppose that relates to a question about what kind of tenses we think about distraction in and what, what kind of um, do, do we only think about it belatedly? Um, is it to do with the form of suspension um, of consciousness? And how we apprehend that suspension might again happen differently in different words that we surround the word distraction with, such as, I don't know, diversion or something might make us think about time in a slightly different way to distraction. Um, or something being in a kind of, a kind of meanwhile or an interlude. Um, and I suppose if we're thinking about the essay form in relation to distraction, those things play out in the practice of writing in particular ways. Mm. I like the idea of the meanwhile, because most time you'd think the normal 
use of distraction just means it's a sort of word to describe attention that is wrong, bad for us. So if someone's distracted, they're still attending <coughs> to something else, they've just shifted. But the idea I was reading in um, is it Paul North's book where he says there's another version of distraction which isn't just that I was looking at something and then I looked at something else, which implies a normative thing I should be paying attention to. But some, he calls it the non-thought inside thought. The idea that you're having a sort of hiatus and you're not, point, you're not looking at anything and that's another version of distraction that isn't quite the same as the, the normal use, which implies that there's, some, there's a normative thing we should be looking at and then a thing that we, we are distracted into. Um, Is it worth thinking about the etymology maybe a little bit? Or, sure. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to go first? Well, uh, actually, um, I was going to say something aside from that, which is that um, Marion Milner, who was a psychoanalyst and a painter, said that when she wanted to paint a tree in a field, she looked at everything other than the tree. And this wasn't said with kind of oracular pretentiousness, but it was said very straightforwardly. And the implication was, and she had this idea of wide-angled vision, which was that there was a real risk that, in a way, concentrate, deliberately concentrated attention is deliberate censorship. And actually, the more you attend, the less you see, in her view of this. And I think that's the, that's the thing about, the, in a way, for me, the meanwhile, which is something to do with the, the actual timing of what you see and how you know whether you have been distracted. Because one of the questions that must always be around in here is, what are the criteria for distraction? Because to stay on the subject, you must know what the subject is. Mm. And knowing what the subject is might be much more difficult than it seems, I think. Mm. But are there different types of distraction, then? <coughs> you yeah. might, might a child be distracted in a way that an adult is kind of incapable of being distracted, and so on and so yeah. forth. We, maybe as adults, we're made to feel... We're, more easily made to feel guilty about our distractions, so that there's a sort of distraction is generally pathologised. Yeah. Isn't it? You, we, yeah. we have we don't have distraction deficit disorder, as far as I know. No. Um, the, and yet we could easily pathologise attention. We could talk about attention being um, fixity, compulsion, and so on. But in general, um, so to go back to your question, I. <coughs> Thinking about distractions of modern culture, the, the, the general sense is that you, you, if you were distracted, you, you, you've, been, you've been playing truant in a way that you shouldn't have been. But I can't imagine, I mean, if I were to say to my five-year-old son, you're distracted, Noah, I get the feeling that nothing, nothing interesting would come of that. He would be yeah. absolutely fine. He wouldn't fine know with, what you were talking he would, about. He, and even if he did, it wouldn't be a, a, a bad word. It would just be a sort of... Water off a duck's back. So, I don't know. Do you think adult adult versions of distraction are always hedged by senses of what they? Um, well, part of acculturation must be being instructed what one is supposed to attend to and how one should attend. Yeah. So you could imagine, even though we don't know this, that there's a huge disarray of disparate thoughts and feelings going on in younger children, very few of which are articulated. But were you to say, and you know, you can see this if you have small children or go to primary schools. Getting the children to concentrate is extremely difficult. But of course, sometimes it really takes in some miraculous way. Mm. But quite quickly, people get fidgety and you know, they want to do all sorts of other things. And for some reason, 
we, whoever we are, seem to believe that it'd be much better if they could only concentrate. Of course, there'd be less trouble if they could only concentrate. If you take a three-year-old for a walk and you let the three-year-old guide you, you have a very weird walk. <laughs> Whereas if you take them for a walk, of course, it's different. There's a moment in, in one of Adam's talks, in one of your talks, where you say distractedness is not something that we teach in schools, though perhaps we should. And I like that idea. And I wonder if you could say something, something more about it. Well, psychoanalysis is an education of distractedness, really. Mm. I mean, I think, the, I think the, the implication would be, if you think of it the other way around, in a masturbation fantasy or in pornography, there's no distraction. That's the point. As though there's something very anxious or precarious about the desire, such that it's got to be extremely focused. As though were there to be a distraction in this, it, you know, desire would collapse. And it seems to me that there's something quite instructive about that, about what the anxieties are about not being distractible, yeah. or an anxiety about letting one's mind wander, or having stray thoughts. I think if I go on talking, I'll repeat myself. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe also attention isn't... We've been talking as though they're opposites, so attention and distraction, but attention needn't be the opposite of distraction. No. You, uh, um, you could think of attention as... or distraction as a sort of unconscious of attention. You think you're attending to something, but you've got huge other claims in the background or the, the, the wings of your attention that help to shape that attentiveness. Um, we were talking about the sort of, you know the etymology of distraction being sort yeah. of dispersion, dispersion, yeah. and but asunder. Yeah. yeah, well, attention is also uh, uh, at tendere is um, to stretch. Mm. So even inside the etymology of attention, there's a sort of grasping or at least a movement. I think we tend to think of attention is spotlight, distraction is searchlight, but then there needn't be. Um, conceived as, a, as, as total polarities. Well, I think when you try to concentrate upon one, they kind of become one another. Um, I mean, even in the example you gave of a sexual fantasy, it, it's mm. an, an intense form of attention, which could also be described as a distraction, or you know, yeah. the two things kind of become one another. Um, <coughs> yeah. this, this word distraction is very interesting, then, and, and the sense of, of distraction being a pulling away from something. But if it is, then what is it we're being pulled away from? And is that something culturally or linguistically specific? So I'm wondering, do we think about distraction in the same way in French or German as we do in English, for instance? I know, Anne, you have some, some interesting thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a sort of impossible question to answer because you could think about it sort of, you know, on the level of the sentence that would you, you know, in a language like German where you, the verb comes last. It, yeah. Does that manage your attention differently? Are you more or less distracted? I, I, don't, I, I don't know if there are deep linguistic answers to those questions. I kind of believe that, that, that there aren't. Um, but in German, there again, there's a sort of constellation of different words. Mm. Um, so Ser Steuholm, for instance, which, again, Walter Benjamin has made kind of well-known through this phrase, Reception durch Steuholm, so reception through distraction. Um, <coughs> But that word seems to, you know, it's been translated as distraction into English, but mm. it's kind of, without that being slightly problematic, because in German you might also say like ablenkung or, um, 
there's all kind there's a whole kind of constellation of different words around it as there are in French I think whereas in English I mean, we say inattention as well but inattention doesn't quite mean distraction Verstreuung yeah. um, yeah. um, in German is close to disturbance as well I mean there's different ways in which as I suppose distracted is for us too there's, a, there's that element of kind of madness and sort yeah. of distractedness yeah. as well yeah. Yeah. Um, so Camp Hamlet being the kind of obvious example of the play that uses the word distraction as a, as a complex word mm. to yeah. have distraction in your aspect for Ophelia to enter distracted these mm. kinds of things um, but I think once you start thinking about it in relation trans to translation it becomes extremely mm. I, mean, I, think, I think that's one of the best ways to think about the word in a way is to kind of venture into different languages mm. and think about how it, how it operates mm. um, there's, there's a really nice moment in your essay, Distraction Fits, where you talk about that stage direction in Hamlet, interophilia distracted. Um, and, and Hamlet comes up in Adam's work on distraction too, as though it's a kind of you know, ultimate play about distraction mm -hmm. in some ways. But I wonder if, if you could say something about that, about, about performance and drama and the stage and, and being beside oneself or out of your mind and how that might mm -hmm. enable you to, to perform distraction in some way. There's a kinship there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I think it's right. I mean, I think that's a, a, a really good example of kind of enter Ophelia distracted because um, when we were talking about this before, you mentioned as well that you know you wouldn't read that. If, I mean, you wouldn't know that she'd entered distracted if you weren't reading the play, and quite how somebody would perform entering distracted. It's interesting. I mean, it the complex word in the play has kind of bled over into the stage directions, but. Um, she could just seem kind of loony, right, mm. or lovesick, or, or kind of feigning. And so I think that sort of shows us something about distractions, theatricality as well, mm. and its potential for sort of melodrama, mm. even, perhaps. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know. So, yeah. And then the, the other side of that, I suppose, is something about stage directions being distractions in scripts. And, there's other ways you could think about that, but, but I do think the aspect of sort of theatricality within distractions is kind of interesting. Mm. Um. Yes, we would assume if, if an actor or actress were distracted on stage, they would be acting poorly unless they were acting distraction. Mm. And so if they, you're bound up with that performative element, aren't you, right in the middle of it? Because it's a bit like Matt said before, in a way there aren't two things, one being attention, the other being distraction. There are at attention with different focuses or targets or purposes. Because I think, I mean, it is interesting that certainly in the 17th century and later, distraction was madness. There was a distracted mind, as though there were real dangers in not attending in certain ways. And that, you know, as it were, the problem of the so-called mind was that it was distractible. Mm. And that seems to me has always been, one way or another, the, pro the problem, the question is why that is a problem, mm. as opposed to a gift. Yeah. Or one of the great things about the mind is it's distractible. Yeah, it's also just thinking about the Hamlet moment where he says, um, he's saying about the player, distraction in his aspect. Yeah. Distraction seems to there introduce an ambiguity about whether they are in fact distracted. It's sort of like the problem of other minds. When, when we say someone's distracted, what we tend to mean is they're not paying attention to us. Yeah, sort of what we think they should be paying attention to. Yeah, there's a sort of anxiety. So they're somehow not with us. 
but we, uh, which could fill us with all sorts of anxiety. Or as though built into the label distraction could be the idea of um, our fantasies of ourselves as being the kinds of people that hold, att- hold other people's attention. Or need to coerce their attention. Yeah. And yeah. we don't want to fall out of other people's minds. Yeah. Or some other people's minds. It's not even clear, is it, when an enter Ophelia distracted, whether it means mad or whether it means just she's got a lot on her mind. Yeah. It's, it's as, as though even the, sta- the stage direction, you might hope for omniscience from a stage direction, but that's not actually what the, it gives you in that instance. It's just another problem. It's like you were saying about it being a complex word that extends out of the script as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And because so much happens off stage in that play, I mean, Ophelia dies off stage in a way and you hear it kind of reported Mm. you you hear about her death through somebody else's report and that's quite interesting too Mm. Um, so each of you has has written about distraction and I wanted to ask about the essay and and distraction and the idea or the worry that you might be in writing about it you might be replacing distraction with, with attention in some way or you might be kind of doing it wrong and I wondered if you could speak about the experience of of trying to write about distraction and the problems that that kind of causes or raises well I don't I'm just thinking about I actually found it a useful excuse to be distracted so I and, and maybe I think of the essay form as the perfect place to not worry too much about what I'm up to, or not worry too early. Mm-hmm. So um, I found think you just writing about distraction, uh, just a sort of another version of the thing that I always think when I'm writing essays, which is don't decide too early what you think you're up to, and allow for um, it, it needn't be an argument straight off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure I felt at actually. But you're asking, in a way, just by focusing on distraction, whether you make it too, um, you falsify it by talking about it too coherently? Is that yes, I suppose yeah. it's, it's um, a kind of an, another version of you know, the question Anne asked in her essay, can I, do, can I ever know that I'm distracted? How do you know that yeah. what you're writing about is distraction? Isn't it yeah. always sort of, she, Anne describes it as an evasive object of knowledge and the idea yeah. of trying to put down in description. That's true. That, there's a moment in that Paul Northwood where he says, you can never say, I am distracted. It's all, you can't have that feeling in the present. It's always past. But then I also thought, you can't ever really say, I am absorbed. Mm. You can't you actually... Could say you, I could say, I'm being distracted this moment by somebody fidgeting. Yeah, but in the moment, you sort of, is a slight. No, yeah, I do. I mean, it is. A there's a gap. Yeah, there is but a gap. it's the same with absorption. If I'm really fully paying attention, I'm not quite aware that I'm paying attention. Yeah. If I'm doing it 100% yes, right. You've I'm, forgotten yourself. Yeah, in yeah. both states. Mm-hmm. Because you experience it, so, you know, and you experience it belatedly. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're quite interested in the temporal. Writing about distraction inevitably is a very self-conscious act, right? So I think it makes you think about the nature of writing as mm. you're writing about it in the way that, mm. I don't know, writing about 18th century 
and but it also makes a, a kind of it it turns um, a moment where one should not be distracted allegedly into a kind of beautiful play between the the the, 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 the members of the couple. Um, but I'm just thinking about is it the case that we tend to think of attention or we describe our attention volitionally, and we describe our distractions as things that happen to us. Yeah. It's another way in which we yeah. evaluate the two the, the Yes, two or, or disown volition. Yeah. You know, either well, I could think I'm being distracted. We don't tend to think I'm distracting myself at every moment of my life. Yeah, thoughts. whereas I pay attention yeah. or I give attention. Yeah. Or, so we, there's, yeah. the language is sort of loaded against us wanting to give up volition, which I, 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 I mean, Tristan Shandy seems to be sort of whatever else it is, uh, an invitation to give up willing things yeah. and to yeah. enjoy the... Because um, presumably attention is on the side of an autonomous self. Mm. One of the ways you might think yeah. of this is that we can choose to pay attention and the problem or the advantage is that we can't in that sense choose to be distracted. We can be more or less distractible or we can create the conditions in which we're distracted. But as you say, we're as it were the victims of our distractions, mm. the object yeah. of them. Yeah. I can't I can't decide what I'm going to distract myself with in the next 20 minutes no, beyond a certain point. Yeah. In another moment of that I say Matt you talk you say that we're always we always paid more attention in the past and you could leave us you know kind of being completely appalled by how distracted his kind of peers were. But I think that that's very true and it's very interesting and um Adam in in one of your talks you you quote Stephen Greenblatt's um idea about the fate of culture, you, you, you're asking about the fate of culture in an age of global mobility. I wonder, are we, you know, are we more mm. distracted now? Is it useful to think about ourselves in that way? Is it silly? Um, mm. Yeah. It's the kind of elephant in the room. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's interesting. I was just thinking, uh, yeah, no, when I was sort of reading around for that, Piece, yeah, I, the, the, the sort of there's a, a strong tradition of diatribes against the things that we're distracted by. So for, for Levis, it's in a, a sense popular culture. A few years on, saw Bellow writes a piece on the age of distraction, and it's TV and radio, and it's that they didn't do that, those things in the past. Bellow gives a good example. Or it was good for my purposes because he says what we really need to go back is to people like Wordsworth who were never distracted hmm. they focused and yet you have this beautiful moment in the prelude where Wordsworth admits he says I wrote the poem out of distraction and intense desire and of course hmm. the prelude is in a way a distraction from other things he's being told he should be doing so I think there is a kind of weird way again it might be a sort of nostalgic punishment like there's some Garden of Eden where we were all unfallen and attentive yeah. And now we're, it's always, if it's not TV and radio, it'll be Facebook and Twitter. And so there's always something new. But also just think how much parenting is to do with stopping the children being distracted. And we're all the time trying to get them to focus their attention on what we take to be of value, that they should be attending to. So the thing about adults is they know what should be attended to. And the children don't come to this mm. naturally or easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting, in, very interesting to me that in child development, um, in which there is a lot of covert, not always, but covert sort of mother blaming, one of the things that is often said to be a real danger to the child's development is distracted mothers. The idea being clearly that the mother should, given nobody's ever forgiven their own mother, the mother should be entirely concentrating on the child. 
so that the distracted mother in, in the malign story of this um, doesn't hold the child sufficiently in mind. And the child then is at a loss and can't then think about themselves because they haven't been thought about. So mm -hmm. the distracted mother, of which another name is the narcissistic mother, there's a whole vocabulary of this stuff. But one way or another, the implication is that the mother isn't a real person, I doesn't have a complex mind and should wholly attend. And that will then free the child to have an open mind, think out what he or she wants to think about. And this is a very interesting kind of cultural mm -hmm. construction because clearly mothers mustn't be distracted. And we could say we've all had that experience or that grievance somewhere, that they haven't quite concentrated enough or in the right way on us. So we're the victims of an initial or primal distractedness. Mm. And that'd be one way of putting yeah. it. There are other ways. I wonder if we, we fetishize our own distraction in a way and kind of judge other people's or cast dispersions on other people's. Um, it's sort of like dreams. You, know, you kind of you endlessly want. You're fascinated by your own, but it's really boring when somebody else tries to kind of describe what happened. Is that? What do you guys think about that? Or maybe it's just me. <laughs> yeah. No, but you could think of your dreams as a distraction. I mean, anything yeah. that you can't, anything that's unintelligible that you're capable of thinking and feeling, you could feel distracted by. Yeah. That it doesn't fit yeah. into some preconception. Yeah. yeah. Or is it, I was just thinking again, is it, if you're the one in the room when they're being distracted, is it also that you that's rendered the comic butt in the sense that you haven't held their attention? So that you're yeah. quick to sort of, that might be a reason for why other people's distractions just really aren't that interesting. Mm. Um, there's a kind of, there's an e ego in the room that wants conversation or attention. Or, or we're trying to stop other people having the full range of their thoughts and feelings about us. Mm. So we're working extremely hard to get other people to attend to us in certain ways so they won't have the other thoughts and feelings they might be having. Yeah. We spend a lot of time thinking about how we should attend to art and then what, you know, about receptivity in that, in that sense. I wonder, Adam mentions at one point um, that you say culture might be knowing what distraction is. And I wonder if you could say something about that. We don't usually think about our reaction to, to, to a work of art in terms of distraction, but there might be some use in that. Yes, I mean, when I was, wrote the thing about um, Stephen Greenblatt, it occurred to me that one of the ways of thinking about this would be that... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, we could think literally of works of art in terms of the distractions they evoke in us. Now, of course, that would be the whole spectrum of the most boring thing on earth to potentially very revealing. And it would, of course, be interesting if there were um, shared forms of distraction that are created by certain artifacts. I mean, it's a version of thinking, what does this artifact evoke in you? 
and what, which of those evocations do you think is relevant or significant? Mm. But it, I think it would be interesting to think in terms of the distractions made possible as opposed to the deliberateness made possible. You know, how much you can allow yourself. I mean, Deleuze talks about the capacity to be affected. And it would seem to me part of the ca a capacity to be affected would be to be able to bear and even enjoy one's strayest thoughts or one's most distracting mm. thoughts. So you wouldn't be all the time pulling yourself back, you'd be following yourself through. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I was just thinking about that idea. When um, the, 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 the distraction piece, when I was thinking about it, the, 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 I was, it was in trying to answer a, a, a thought I'd had, which I had to sort of, it just happened one day I was reading, and then I realized, I can't remember what I was reading, I was reading, uh, it was something like a, a, a bit of, a, a description of, of a young boy walking around the house he grew up in. And then I realized that what I was seeing as I read the description of the house was not the narrator's house. It was my, uh, my version. Of it. And I thought, right, so even when, I don't know if other people do this, but what I tend to see when reading is I superimpose some bit of my past and it blends with the other. So I thought, actually, even when I'm paying attention, I'm actually always distracted. And I can think there are certain writers that might be more, um, or maybe more forms, that are more willing to allow that to be part, or, or, or yeah, more, more willing to allow that to occur to you. Yeah, or if, for example, you read Finnegan's Wake and you concentrate, <laughs> something very, very odd happens. Mm. And in that mm. sense, it doesn't matter whether you do or don't. Yeah. Or rather, it does matter, but yeah. it matters in different ways. Yeah. I wonder whether these things are different when they are solitary reading experiences or when you are a member of an audience. So how we think about distraction differently if we are thinking about you know, reading a poem or a novel alone mm. or whether we are thinking about other forms of art um, which are time-bounded forms of art in a different way um, such as a poetic drama or performance where there are time-bounded beings performing a time-bounded work of art. So that duration kind of happens differently and duration happens collectively and du duration happens with mortal beings moving in time. So that there's something about the way that Shakespeare writes which is interesting in relation to thinking about the way distraction works, I think. So that a poetic drama will often use kind of upsoarings or songs or kind of lyricism as a way of kind of moving your attention from here to here, kind mm. of distracting you by something very beautiful. Mm. So that somebody's going to sing over here because actually it's going to move your attention over there and something else will be happening. Yeah. But the reason why that might be different in a dramaturgical art is that it will always have dramaturgical reasons for doing so. Mm. Um, so, that, so that one analogy might be, you know, the difference between kind of thinking about I'm gazing about a, you know, I'm kind of daydreaming and distracted by the idea of a charming stranger simply by looking out of my window while reading an Ashbury poem. <laughs> or I'm <laughs> distracted by a charming stranger mm. and he's picked my pocket. Mm. Because actually there's a kind of dramatic reason for it. Yes. Yeah, so, so there's something kind of interesting about, what, about the way diversions might happen mm. in a form which needs to have kind of dramaturgical reasons for them happening. Yeah. Yeah. And not kind of... Yeah, and how, how it kind of changes if you're an audience, I think. Yeah. 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 You're observing mobility of attention, aren't you, mm. when you're watching a play? 
You're watching how attention moves around. Plus, you're also, yeah. you feel, at least when, when it's a solitary reading experience, like the, the initial way I was describing scratching, one thing you tend to feel, or I tend to feel, is safe. Right. You're never, yeah. you're never safe in an audience. In the same, there's a bit, I can't remember which comedian uh, says, sort of, he says, oh, you, you don't want to laugh, uh, you don't want to not laugh because you represent your row, right? There's that sense of the interaction of, of, of there's a sort of group mind that gets created. You're aware of whether mm. you are or aren't part of the mm. um, reading, a sol solitary reading experience. You're protected a bit from that. that that's sort of what Benjamin means, and isn't it, when he talks about reception and distraction? Mm. He's not really thinking about one's individual engagement with the work no. of art. He's thinking about what it is to receive something as part of an audience. Yeah. Yeah, because he's thinking about film and he's kind of excited about film and he's excited about Brecht and he's excited about mass audiences and he's kind of frightened about them and that's where that phrase occurs. Um, and it's, a, it's become a kind of slogan that's been taken out of that context. Um, but yeah, he's thinking about theatricality, definitely, yeah. yeah. Well, thinking about our audience, um, shall we open, open the floor, as it were? Um, you don't necessarily represent your row. Necessarily. Necessarily. Thank you. Um, a question really about the internet. Um, and I, I know you mentioned that there are different periods of time where people have been nostalgic and said that some new technology is sort of massively <coughs> distracting everybody and changing the way we think. I was just thinking more about what particularly is it about the internet that sort of gives us new opportunities for distractions and what are the, what, what are the sort of just your thoughts about what the internet does to your concepts of distraction? Well, I'm not on the internet, so I don't think I'm in a position. Yeah, you're, to be on <laughs> he's safe. No, you're in, a, you're in an especially interesting position. I meant I was probably the only person who would really ask the question. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm just personally rather bored by people saying, Trouble with the young is they can't concentrate. Mm. All the time they're on their phones, they're on their, and you just think, we heard our parents saying this about us in different ways. Mm. You just think, diff you know, there are generational differences, different kinds of people are being mm. produced, and we don't know what they'll be like. Yeah. But there's no reason to assume that the forms of attention we value are valuable to anybody else. They may be, and one yeah. might be a good reason for it, but that's all you could give. I mean, this happens all the time. I, I'm told this, but by various people. Uh, the 14-year-old sits at the table having dinner with the parents and is texted and answers the text. The parent says, it's rude to text at the table. The child says, it's rude not to answer a text. Good point. There you have it. But it, before the internet, it would have been something like video games. I remember for years when I was growing up, video games showed that I was, being, I was distractible and I wasn't doing the kind until I, I was very pleased to see that something it was a few years ago in nature they published a study to that showed proved that people who play video games have in the, in the the scientists quote superior attentional capacities <laughs> so it's as though you know there's a sort of it's as though we're not really because we're not agreed about what attention is and we're not really agreed no, about what not. distraction is um, the internet surfaces as the latest thing to knock. I think that's all true, but on the other hand, I think there's also a kind of very, I mean, again, from a kind of teaching point of view, 
there's a way in which you want to inculcate in your students spaces in which they're not merely looking up information um, so that you know it's not just that you give them a poem by Wordsworth and you give it to them on paper for a reason because you want them to go to the library and just sit and be either attend or be distracted by that poem but not to look up you know the romantics thought this about you know (laughs) solitary reapers and I now know everything about Highland lasses and you know I mean it's just a kind of way in which you need to try to instill moments when those tools are useful or when you can you know Mm. impede your thinking by becoming a kind of tool worshipper so yeah I think it's to do with framing things as well and and finding spaces where you can read on paper or read you know without an ad coming up you know Um, so yeah, I, I think I think there's there's a space for kind of severity about these things as well, but yeah, certainly in my class. Yeah, <laughs> there was some discussion about um, sort of post events. You uh, society would judge a distraction. So for example, um, you know if, if someone was distracted like Wordsworth, but they came up with some wonderful notion, then post event we judge that as a good distraction. But the the other perspective, which is not really been mentioned, although perhaps briefly in relation to volition, um, is does society um, actually judge this uh, on the basis of a very sort of old idea about um, um, being master of your faculties, being something that's very important to humans, perhaps it sets us above the animals. And so, for example, you know, we, uh, if someone was a great concentrator and could read a book for hours, um, people would tend to say, wow, but if they found out actually they weren't master of their faculties and they had a compulsive disorder, we it, people would change their minds. And in the same way, generally people see people very distracted by social media and so they automatically think they're not master of their faculties and there comes the judgment but actually if you quiz them and they actually say well actually I'm a, I'm a great concentrator it's just you know for an hour every day I deliberately have this practice of letting my mind wander so I'm wondering if it goes back to um, that more primeval thing and it's not post factum a judgment about what the distraction produces but it's a judgment about people being a master of their faculties. Yeah, do, you, do I'm just thinking that through. Do you, so, do you, the, the judgment is made purely because the, uh, um, the non-volitional is a threat. Or, or it, both. I mean, it could be both. both yeah. 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 And we, I think we did touch on it when we were talking about autonomy, the equation between autonomy and attention. I mean, the question is whether you prefer a disordered mind to an apparently ordered mind. It seems to me one way or another it's going to come down to people wanting to persuade other people of the value of certain kinds of attention and the value of certain objects of attention. And the vocabulary is probably going to be about control, but there's always going to be a question, what what are the reasons given for the value given to this kind of attention? Why should I attend to that object rather than this object? And these seem to me to be genuinely interesting questions, given an awful lot of attention is unconscious. Mm. We just take it for granted. It's a really good idea to read Wordsworth if you're reading English, say. And then someone will come along and say, you know, I'd rather play football, or whatever mm. it is. Now, it depends who they're, gonna, who they're talking to. 
because, I mean, what Anne described as encouraging a certain kind of attention in her students, I imagine all three of us would probably agree with. But of course, there'd be a lot of other people who wouldn't necessarily agree with that. So it would, it would inevitably be a conversation about the value of certain kinds of attention. And that's a conversation, presumably, about the value of certain kind of ways of living, of what people should be doing together and by themselves. And I suppose these things are quite blurred, aren't they, in certain sorts of practices, quite ancient practices, such as learning something by heart, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. is learning something by heart attention or distraction? Yeah. Or learning or, a skill. Or committing something to, committing something yeah. to heart. Um, you know, kind of even learning to read, or these kind of early kind of formative experiences, or memorization is a kind of interesting way in which mm. th 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 there's this kind of... Um, these these two aspects sort of bleed bleed into bleed into one another. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because in psychoanalysis, you effectively say to the patient, "Try not to concentrate." That if you concentrate, you'll speak rehearsed thoughts, so to speak. Whereas yeah. if you, and of course, a paradoxical demand, but if you try not to concentrate, you'll suspend something that will make something else possible. Mm. There's an interesting bit of a is in an interview with Ashbury where he says that. Um, so he, he, it's one of his many moments where he says, I write best when I'm distracted and I want readers to feel distracted when they read me. But he says it's actually easier to pay attention to something to, than to cultivate a sort of nebulous half attention. He's, and he gives the example, he says it's a bit like it's actually harder to free associate than it is to talk in normal sentences. Yeah. In other words, it's, it's actually... we've. It's hard not to make sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that there might be a reason to cultivate that ability. Well, Ferenczi said the patient isn't cured by free associating, they're cured when they can free associate. And that would mean when they can allow themselves the complexity of their mind involuntarily. Mm. It looks a bit like negative capability. I mean, isn't that what Keats had in mind? As it were, how you come out of your mind how you get distracted and I'm trying to think this through but isn't distraction for me it looks like distraction is always a form of desire and I mean I just want to biologically root that in us what I mean is we're desiring lots of different things and that's what so I take it that's what Adam means when he says the, the unconscious isn't functioning here you know, we're sitting there and then we start to think about and we get distracted in various ways. Yeah. Now, the culture might want to criticise and say, well, you need to pay attention to this and not that. Fine. But what's going on in us is actually this thing, this animal thing, which is, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting. And the question is how you cultivate that is the odd thing, particularly if you're a teacher or, or for the culture itself because then you look like you're directing it. But then I don't know a way around that. How do you build complexity into things? Yeah. I like the idea, again, of just when you of distractions of, as a link to desire. Again, it goes back to that word that when words, he paired the two words as well, distraction and intense desire. I mean, if you have an essentialist view of this, then you'd say, you could say, Either distraction is born of desire, or distraction is born of the wish to evade desire. You know, if you're running away from something, you're running towards something else. The question is which of these two things is valued, or how is it valued? Because you could think, 
fascist dictators are very, very, very good at holding people's attention in a certain kind of way. So there'd be as a politics of this. And that would mean that there's a wish to have one's mind narrowed. There's a wish to be undistracted. And that could be a very dangerous wish and a very good wish, depending on the context. In answer to your question about how you cultivate it, would it be, I mean, in analysis, there's a clear cultivation in the sense there's an environment that, that says, you are now free to be distracted. In schools, it would, again, it's a, I've been reading about fidgeting recently, and, and maybe it relates that fidgeting was bad until it was good. Yeah. Fidgeting is now meant to be good in the sense it shows a version of an, a, a, a mind that wants to be somehow in more, or a body in more than one place at one time. Uh, but uh, the, it, it, there is a, so in other words, paying a, pay attention, children, is quite closely linked to sit still or don't fidget. There's a, kind of bod, a sort of bodily analogy of what. Uh, but in fact, again, I, who knows, I have no idea about how, how this has worked out, but fidgeting apparently helps learning. That the, the students that, that, that move more yeah. learn quicker. Yeah. So it's another version of um, the capriciousness and the lack of solidity yeah. defining all these kind of policing mechanisms. For yes, and they become a bit like paradoxical injunctions. It's like the Jesuit who said, if you tell people to think about God, they'll think about sex. <laughs> and you can see how that works. Yeah. Because by telling somebody to think about something, they can't help but think about other things as well. That's always going to be the paradox about uh, coerced attention. Um, I wonder if you could all speak to the relationship between distraction and boredom. <clears throat> which might prepare the ground for distraction in some senses, because it would seem that there's a distinction between um, being distracted by something which is exhilaratingly interesting and um, being distracted from something which is incredibly tedious. Those might be two different things. I think the trouble with these things is it's very difficult to generalize occasions, because obviously each instance is different. I mean, when you said it, I thought... Um, I can imagine that one of the self-cures for boredom would be distraction, but it would only work if it worked, if you see what I mean. I mean in a bored state of mind, you might be restlessly searching for a desire, for something that will take, something that will hold your attention. Now, you might have to sample a lot of distractions until something actually does take, but that would be true of lots of things in life, so to speak. There might have to be a lot of sampling before something works, or unless and until something works. I mean, in a way, you could think that boredom is like a fog over one's desiring self. It makes desire impossible. And if you are really frightened of desiring, then you would make yourself either as bored as possible or as dead as possible or as distractible as possible. So you'd never get to the object. As though there's always something else. There's all, you're, you've got your eye on the door all the time. One sort of distraction from the main talk is, is I was remembering that distraction is in fact one of the lessons that the mock turtle learned in Alice in Wonderland mm. when they were doing maths. They did mm. along with ambition and uglification and derision. Um, I wanted to speak to this point that the idea that somehow concentration is what separates us from the animals, that you know, it's, it's a higher faculty. It's a very Roman sounding idea. I mean, <coughs> for a start, I think anyone who owns a dog will tell you that if, if you put your dog in the presence of a squirrel, you'll soon, soon find out about concentration. Um, my dog can certainly concentrate far better than any human I know. Um, and, and actually, there's 
rather than it being that kind of enlightenment rationalist view, it's, it's, there's much more theological anxiety in our anxieties about distraction, that it's when we're distracted, distraction is very close to temptation, it's when we're distracted that the devil sneaks in, mm -hmm. and that all these, all these ideas of wandering, attention wanders, and we wander from the path of virtue, and we stray and we err. Yeah. And I wondered if you could talk about that, the sort of idea of virtue, <coughs> distraction. Attend upon the Lord, that kind of uh, commitment. As you were talking about your dog, there's a bit in Darwin which I've always, I've always hoped was a joke, where he's saying it's about the idea that, yeah, that, that ev more, the more evolved you are, the more able you are to concentrate. And he gives an example of an animal hunting another animal and saying, I think it's a tiger, saying how brilliantly it concentrates. Um, and then he says something like, they concentrate so well that such animals at these times are quite easily approached. <laughs> Which does something interesting. You know, you're vulnerable in your concentrations. It's so, you're so evolved that you're about to become prey. Sort of would be, I think, fit, fitting with one version of it would be. A, I'm hoping it's a joke. I like the idea that he's sort of resisting. It's like attention as armor, isn't it? And so distractedness is like hypervigilance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was thinking partly about what you were saying about being distracted from 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 boring things by interesting distractions, but. When I'm thinking about writing, I'm often, if I get to a point where I'm stuck, I'm often looking for, often going to make a cup of tea, for instance, and that's a, and, and one, in one way I could say I'm, I really want a cup of tea, so my desire for a cup of tea has distracted me from my boring work, but the tea very rarely gets drunk, and sometimes gets made, but only sometimes gets made, and I think what happens then is that I'm actually, I've actually picked something boring to do from which to be distracted back to my work and to make it something that I want to be distracted by. So I'll toddle off back to work very happily because I've been distracted from this boring thing that I've just invented mm. to be bored by. So, yeah, <laughs> so that I can now be interested in going yeah. back to work. So I've sort, yeah. of, sort of triangulated my concentrated situation somehow where I, got, where I got stuck. I've now sort of made something from which I want to be distracted mm. and got back there. Yeah, I think there are these kind of strange, I mean, it relates to distraction and desire. I think there are these strange kind of illusions that we create for ourselves through our distractions. So that in his essay on, on love, Stendhal talks about when we fall in love, we throw this little twig into a salt mine. And it's just an ordinary little twig. And all these crystals form around it. And then we take it out again, and it's this beautiful object. But underneath is just this twig, which is kind of why we, we look for objects upon which to place our distractions, I think. So that everything mundane about someone, you know, they're just this mere twig. But when we fall in love, we crystallize around them. We make them into this beautiful object. And is that maybe, is there an analogy between persons and the pieces of writing that we're trying to make as well? that sometimes there are these kind of twigs, but you, you need to kind of crystallize around them. You need to kind of find ways of kind of putting all these diverse diversions and distractions onto something. But the idea itself might be like a bit of wood. Um, but then, you know, the crystals can fall away as well. So it's sort of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> A little bit sideways, I was thinking about music, which is an mm. intensely structured form and without overt meaning, usually. 
should you then be paying attention to the structure, which is what the maker of the music intended you to pay attention to, mm. or to the emotional, physical response to the music? It's two different mm. sorts and contraindicative forms of attention. Mm. Mm. That's extremely, music is extremely interesting, I think, in relation to all this. And again, we've been kind of mm. hopping around between art forms rather sort of loosely. And I think there's a whole, mm. so much to say about distraction in music. I mean, in, again, in, in Eliot's poetry, the word distraction often comes with music. So distraction, music of the flute, or the, these kinds of moments seem kind of bound up with music in this case. But yeah, I mean, what does it mean to kind of, for a motif to kind of come in or to distract or to, to be sort of aware of structure and yet aware of being diverted of it. I think it's a, a huge question which mm. I'm not actually qualified to answer at all, but um, just to kind of lie down in awe of. <laughs> um, I don't, yeah. Or you could think, oh. what's the difference between an evocation and a distraction? That you mm. could think music, one of the things that music is, is a medium in which one can allow one's mind, if that's mm. what it is, to sort of float. Um, if you were sitting there thinking, okay, what does all this mean? Or what's the structure of this music? You could miss the experience, mm. or miss one of the experiences. Mm. Yeah, there's, um, I can't remember who says it, but somewhere, the idea that me listening to music is, that the person who listens to music is counting without being aware that they're counting. Which would capture both the idea that somewhere your mind is attentive to the structure and the shape of it and then the other bit the resonant side of it is the mind is absolutely being given permission to do another thing but is, but the amazing thing that if you're playing is that it's not your mind it's kind of our mind right so i mean that i mean if it, on, you know, yeah, th th there's a sort of sense in which that if you perform with somebody um there's a sort of sense of a shared mind, yeah, um, and uh, a kind of. I mean, that that's kind of interesting because then there's a sort of sense in which like distractions are kind of prompts, or mm -hmm. um, mm. which is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about the boundaries and. Uh, the framework that holds these distractions. I was just thinking about what Adam said about the free floating this uh, attention, and surely you can, uh, you should, you should stick to the fifty minutes of the session and don't free associate out outside of the session if you are talking about the psychotherapy and and the value of the frameworks that hold these distractions mm -hmm. and to what ex when you would separate free-floating attention to, uh, from, from distraction. From one point you should separate, I think. Well, it depends whose description of the outside you're dealing with, doesn't it? Because the question is whether there is an outside. I mean, uh, the question of, say, free-floating attention, it would seem to me you could only work out the value of it from a consensual agreement once it's shared. So I might have all sorts of thoughts, as anybody might in the presence of anybody. I could say all of them. Some of them may be significant to the person, or significant in all sorts of different ways, or irrelevant. I don't know that until they're voiced. So all the time, it's a bit like a probe or an experiment. You've evoked this in me. Well, you may have done. Something has. And I can give it to you back, and then you can see what, if anything, there is in it for you. 
just like we can speak now perfectly coherent about all sorts of things, but some word or some tone of voice may have a resonance for somebody that sets them off thinking about all sorts of other things. <coughs> and that may be uh, as, well, as or more valuable than the coherent things that are being said. I mean, how do you know something's irrelevant? That's, in a way, the psychonic question. Or is it possible, actually, to change the subject? On which note? <laughs> <laughs> Shall we wrap it up? Um, thank you to everybody for coming, and to Adam and Anne and Matt for a really wonderful discussion. Um, come and harass them at the front. Are there any burning questions? Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>